Hello and welcome to this download from Faber and Faber. My name is George Miller and my guest today is Andy Beckett. Andy is a Guardian journalist whose first book for Faber looked at the hidden history of the Pinochet regime's links with Britain. His new book is called When the Lights Went Out and it examines the history of Britain during that most maligned of decades, the 1970s. Andy set out to investigate whether that decade's unrelievedly bleak reputation is wholly justified. And for those of us who remember power cuts, strikes, and escalating violence in Northern Ireland, he comes up with a much more nuanced picture that goes far beyond the familiar clichés. By coincidence, we met up on a day when the death was announced of the iconic trade union leader of the 70s, Jack Jones. There was a tube strike in London, and a background of worries about our weakening currency and rising unemployment. I suggested to Andy that contemporary politics were offering up uncomfortable parallels he could never have envisaged when he set out to write about the 70s. No, I mean, when I started researching the book about five years ago, we were in the middle of the kind of Blair boom, and the 70s, although people were very interested in it, seemed quite a remote era, kind of time of sort of high inflation and crisis and fear about the economy and fear about the political future. But it kind of gradually crept up on me while I was researching and writing the book. And I found that made me think a little bit differently about the kind of tough times that politicians and union leaders and ordinary people went through in the 70s and maybe made me slightly more forgiving than I might have been at the beginning. Because you realise that crises take people by surprise and that Heath, for example, in the early 70s was commissioning all kinds of great big state schemes like an offshore airport um, in the North Sea, which I write about the Channel Tunnel, because he thought he was going to have money. And then the oil crisis happened and he didn't have any and they had to be cancelled. And it's easy to look at Heath and say, what a fool, why didn't he see that coming? But nobody saw the banking crisis coming here, or very few people did. So it's made me think more about how posterity and hindsight kind of treats politicians. And it's made me maybe try and angle the book away from just constant recrimination which is the kind of traditional mode of writing about the 70s, saying why didn't they see bad things would happen? Why were they so overconfident? Why didn't they see that Britain needed to change? Because things are often not like that at the time. And I think the current crisis shows that. The, almost the entire political establishment here have been taken by surprise again. Mm. Yeah, you, you mentioned there some received ideas that you wanted to challenge, and you wanted to challenge the sort of pop culture interpretation of the 70s, which we're in danger of seeing as perhaps the only the only one that's sort of standing the test of time. Yes, I mean, I think that the 70s is clearly a very rich period for kind of culture of all kinds. And a lot of that culture has interesting things to tell us about the 70s. But I felt that that's become almost the main way people get at the 70s. They talk about punk, they talk about TV, they talk about the films. And I felt that that had been done a tremendous amount already. There are literally two or three hundred books on punk, and I felt, how much could I really add? I also feel that cultural evidence is quite tricky. Sometimes a film is said by critics to really tell you about a particular era, but actually the film was made two or three years before it came out. And a lot of the very bleak pop music at the end of the 70s, post-punk, was, was made at a time when actually the economy was improving but the songs reflected the feelings of those musicians maybe a couple of years before. So I think the read across from culture in the 70s to the kind of politics and the economy and society has to be done with care. But I think my main motivation was I want to try and tell a new story and the culture of the 70s has an enormous literature, um, including some fantastic books, and I haven't really got that much to add. So I'm going to concentrate on politics because I feel that that's the thing that the myths are about, but which hasn't actually been dealt with straight for a long, long time. And so that was the kind of project of the book. And what expectations did you have of the politicians that you interviewed? Because 
they're obviously mainly very old men now and they've all got their own grudges and scores to settle on or perhaps rose-tinted views. So what expectations did you have of those encounters which, which run through the book? I certainly expect them, as you say, to be very old. I mean, one thing about the 70s and the way in which Britain was different then was you didn't get to run anything until you were a lot older than now. So people that ran Britain in the 70s were already in their 50s or 60s. So if they're alive still, they're in their 80s now. So I was seeing some people who were really quite old, who sometimes couldn't remember, but also some of whom were very cunning and had already had their say in their memoirs and so on, a lot of which were published in the 80s and which generally saw the 70s as a terrible period because that was the view of the 70s then. So I guess I expected I would encounter some kind of clever but quite sly people, people like Dennis Healy, who were very entertaining to interview but were keen to place themselves at the centre of events in the 70s and also to make themselves look good in retrospect, which is what politicians do. So I wanted to see Healy, I saw Heath, I saw Jack Jones, but I was also aware that that couldn't be the whole story, that politicians are quite adept at making themselves look good in retrospect. And also that in a way, politics in the 70s is as much about ordinary people taking part in strikes, taking part in feminist activities, taking part in gay liberation, environmentalism, those new movements. And so the story couldn't be told entirely through, if you like, the members of the various cabinets. And I think sometimes historians, contemporary historians, almost collect all the cabinet ministers in a particular era in a slightly kind of macho way, like I've got more, and actually how much does that tell you? So I tried to be quite selective about who I would go and see, and also to treat, as I said, what they said with a degree of kind of scepticism. And it's also part of the project to actually go and see the sites of various key events in the 70s on the ground. Was that was that built into the, the, the plan from the start? Yeah, it was. I mean, I think I wanted the book to be readable, and I wanted it to have a sort of novelistic quality in places. Um, I'm not a huge reader of traditional books about decades because I feel they often lack those qualities. So partly I thought if I went to the places, it would give the book perhaps a greater vividness. But also I think sometimes you need to go to the places to understand. I went to Saltley in Birmingham where there was a huge confrontation between the police and the miners in 1972 when the miners were on strike. And it was really like a kind of battle between the police and the miners, not that violent, but thousands of police, thousands of miners trying to stop each other doing what they wanted. The miners wanted to shut down an old coke depot, the police didn't want them to. And you need to be on the ground to see the lie of the land, to see where the buildings were, to kind of get a sense of how that battle was actually played out. And also you need to go to see people locally, to talk to them what they, about what they remember, to see if they remember it at all, to get some sense of what's left of the 70s. And I think part of the book's project as well was to say what's left of this era. Has it disappeared or is it actually amongst us still? Are these tower blocks still there? Are the old factories still there? Are the people still there? So I constantly had that in mind. What's the relationship between the 70s and now? The ideas physically, how much of it remains? And just to kind of get a sense of place and what part it played in these events. I'm a great believer in, in journalism that I write as well that that often the place itself tells you a tremendous amount about the event and, and that often writers or journalists are reluctant to kind of go to the place because it seems a bit too obvious to go and do that. But often you, you suddenly see the thing afresh when you see the factory, when you see where the picket line was, where you see the oil rig in the North Sea rather than just reading about it. We mentioned at the start the parallels that could be drawn between then and now, but one way in which the 70s seems a very different place is in industrial relations, which is a story running through the whole book. Um, and you mentioned Saltley at the beginning, but right up to the winter of discontent at the end of the 
the decade. And that, that's, that is something which has changed beyond recognition, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that a huge difference between the 70s and now is that the left in the 70s was immensely powerful. The union movement was powerful. The left was powerful in broader society. Students were very interested in Marx. The people teaching them were very interested in Marx. Play for Today was on TV, very high profile, left-wing playwrights writing. So if you like the left, its ideas, its people were probably the, the dominant force in, in British political life in the 70s. And within that, the trade union movement was probably the most powerful element. And as you say, industrial relations were quite tense and involved these big set-piece battles, the minor strikes of the early 70s, the winter of discontent of the late 70s. And that sense of kind of a strong left confronting the right is kind of gone from, from British political life now. It carried on into the 80s, but it's really gone now, at least for the time being. And that's a huge difference. Unions are much smaller now. The Transport and General Workers Union, Jack Jones Union, which was the biggest union in the 70s, had over 2 million members, is now amalgamated with another union, it has a new name, Unite, it has half the membership. So that whole way of arranging things in society, that you had conflicts played out between the left and the right very overtly, that's kind of gone. It may not have gone forever, but it's gone for now. And I think it went really during the 90s. Yeah, I mean, one one corrective to the rather simplistic view that along comes Thatcher and smashes the unions is that actually she was rather tentative at the start and and had a had a very tough time. So it wasn't it wasn't a matter of great power being exerted and the unions crumbling, was it? It was the, things were changing much more um, subtly and slowly than that. That's right. I mean, Thatcher, although she had quite strong ideas about how Britain was going to change, she was quite pragmatic and quite canny. And when she was elected in 1979, the unions were very powerful, though they just destroyed the Callaghan government in the winter of discontent. And she was well aware of that. And when the miners threatened to go on strike in 1981, it's now entirely forgotten, Thatcher basically backed down and gave them everything they wanted. And Conservatives will say now oh, that's because we were preparing for the next confrontation. But I think that they're just saying that. I think that she wasn't strong enough in the early 80s to really take on the unions. Well into the 80s, a lot of Conservatives, let alone Labour politicians, felt that very strong unions were just a fact of life. And I think another thing I try and argue in the book is that in all eras, things don't end neatly, that things like very strong union movement take a long time to kind of decay. They don't decay overnight. And that things often last into subsequent eras that are assumed to have ended in the era before. And certainly a lot of the politics of the 70s really lingers deep into the 80s. It's arguably only after the 83 election when Thatcher has a big majority and then beats the miners in 84, 85, that the 70s really ends. I think in a lot of ways the 70s didn't end in 1979. Oh. They ended about 1982. Um, and that's perhaps something that's not widely enough um, thought. Of, of the three male prime ministers, Margaret Thatcher comes along in, in 79 at the end of the decade, but of the three male prime ministers in the decade, it, it seemed to me that Heath was kind of like the end of a line of, of One Nation Toryism, and Wilson was a sort of tired old man whose administration was crumbling. But that Callaghan was the, was the interesting figure to whom perhaps posterity has been rather unkind. And you, you talk about Britain being a more equal society, having less poverty, according to all the indices under Callaghan than, than before or since. And I wondered if some kind of rehabilitation of Callaghan was part of, part of what you felt emerged from your examination of the period. Yes, I think I did, to some extent, want to rehabilitate him. I think that he's an interesting transitional figure because although he was quite an old man when he was Prime Minister, he was in his mid-60s, he'd been in the Labour Party, he'd been in the trade union movement for decades. 
he was prepared to accept that Britain needed to change. And some of the things he did with the economy, bringing in monetarism, cutting state spending, people under him were interested in privatising council housing, although they never actually did it. Some of those things were beginning to do, if you like, a sort of soft Thatcherism. I don't think Callaghan had quite worked out how to deal with the unions, and I think in a way that's why they brought him down. But I think other areas of British life where consumerism was becoming more important, the late 70s is the period of you know, Brent Cross Shopping Centre opened, Freddie Laker was doing cheap flights to America, people becoming more interested in buying stuff and having stuff and private property, things that we associate with the 80s. He was kind of adapting to that in a sort of halting way. And I think that had the winter of discontent not happened, I think it's possible that he might have won an election in 1978 and may have overseen some of the transition that Thatcher oversaw in the 80s. I don't think he would have gone as far as her, but I think he was beginning to have some thoughts along the same lines. And I think that makes him an interesting figure, but also a kind of tragic figure, because in a way he threw it all away by misjudging where the unions were standing at the end of 78 and allowing the winter of discontent to happen. One of the most interesting things for me, which I didn't know much about, was the the rise of, of the right and seeing how that took shape among think tanks and particular ideologues. And was, was that something that you, you know, where you discovered quite a lot of things as you dug deeper into it? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I was fascinated to see that the ideas that we associate with Thatcherism to do with privatisation, to do with curbing the unions, to do with cutting taxes, were part of a big kind of intellectual movement, if you like, that had been building in Europe and America really since the end of the Second World War, or even since during the Second World War, and that this kind of new politics of the right was just kind of growing and growing very slowly during the 50s and 60s. While everyone was focusing on the welfare state and the strength of the left and the strength of the unions, there was this kind of thing that was going to usurp that world, just building and building. But the Thatcher, when she became conservative leader, suddenly gave that, that political movement, that intellectual movement, an entirely new momentum. But the kind of deep history of that I found very interesting. And I try elsewhere in the book to show that the roots of a lot of what happens in the 70s can be traced back much further than that decade, that, that Heath and Jack Jones and Healy were all people who were involved in the Spanish Civil War and the Second World War, and that formed their politics in a large way. And a lot of Thatcher's ideas went back decades. And if you like, the 70s was the moment when the deep-rooted ideas about how to arrange society, which had been gradually accreting for decades, came into confrontation with each other. It wasn't an overnight thing that the Conservatives suddenly became interested in curbing the unions. It's something they've been building up. And I think that's a key point in understanding the 70s. It's not just a kind of aberrant, freakish decade. It's it's the kind of culmination of a lot of changes in ideas and the structure of society that have been going on since at least the Second World War, if not earlier. And as you alluded to earlier, that the long 70s can be seen as going into the early 80s. Yeah. And one very interesting little detail for me was you mentioned Alan Bleasdale, the Boys and the Black stuff, which I had thought of as kind of archetypal sort of high Thatcherism. Yeah. And in fact, that's not the case at all. That's right. I mean, Alan Bleasdale started writing the Boys and the Black stuff actually in 1978 when unemployment was going up under Callaghan. And although unemployment then was much lower than it was subsequently become under Thatcher, it was quite high by post-war standards. And for various complicated TV reasons, it didn't become a, a TV show until 1982. But some of that sense of unemployment really kind of corroding these sort of northern cities was already very present in Britain, in, Britain in, in the late 70s. A lot of those heavy industries were already in trouble in the 70s before Thatcher then decimated them further. And yeah, I found that fascinating that 
some of these things we really associate with naturalism actually have kind of deeper roots. So although I'm quite favourable towards Callaghan in the book in some ways, you can argue from a left perspective that actually the fact that he was doing some Thatcherite things early is not to his credit. Another of those continuities that goes back to the 60s is the, the rise of things like environmentalism, yeah. grassroots movements, women's liberation, gay rights and so on. And they really flowered, if you like, in the 70s. That's right. I mean, I think that, as you say, feminism and environmentalism and so on, that, that they begin in Britain in a, in a proper sense in the late 60s, but they really achieve momentum in the 70s. That's when things like Spare Rib were set up. That's when the Green Party or its precursor, the People Party, was set up. And I think an important point about those movements is that they move to a completely different rhythm from Westminster politics. So if you're involved in feminism or gay rights or environmentalism, a lot of years in the 70s are the kind of best times you'd ever had. They weren't bad times at all. And that kind of makes you think afresh about the 70s being a bad time because you begin to wonder, well, just because things were bad in the economy or in Westminster, if there are these other movements, environmentalism, that have become immensely important recently, having the best time ever, then we need to rethink our kind of chronology of the period, if you like. And arguably, those bits of politics in the 70s have had the biggest legacy. A lot of the world of the left in the 70s has disappeared, at least for now, whereas the world of environmentalism, I mean, David Cameron's a signatory to that whole thing now. A lot of the gay rights stuff that was happening in the early 70s, David Cameron would agree with that now. So in a way, the deep roots of a lot of the kind of non-economic politics that we see now are in the 70s. And I wanted to kind of talk to people about that then and capture a sense of that excitement of growth that the 70s was a period of kind of growth and possibility as well as a period of kind of entropy, which is the traditional way of looking at it. It's just a series of dead ends. And I think once you start looking at that non-Westminster politics, that very bleak view of the 70s just doesn't really stand up anymore. Yeah, there were two really interesting polls that you quoted in the book. One was on the, the sort of happiness index, and Britain scored really highly, much higher than it does today. And the other was where people were asked about certain lifestyle things like, would you like more pavement cafes? And the majority said no. And would you like Sunday opening? And the majority said no. And I thought that was a very interesting to think about those two things in tandem because we've got all of those cafes, yeah. we've, we've got Sunday opening and so on, um, but we've we've gone considerably down the, the list of um, the, the, the Happiness League. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I wouldn't want to kind of rose tint the 70s. I mean, I think in some ways Britain was a worse place. I mean, it was definitely more racist, it was more homophobic, it was more sexist than it is now. It was probably infuriatingly slow in some ways, particularly if you wanted to go and buy things. But I think that in other ways, I mean, it was a more equal society. It was, as you mentioned earlier, the kind of absolute peak of kind of equality in Britain is in the late 70s, partly because in the recessions in the 70s, rich people did quite badly. Poor people were not so hard, uh, were not so badly affected. But yes, I think that some of the things that we've got now to do with consumerism haven't made us happier, even though at the time people, people might have been thinking, oh, it would be nice to be able to go to a bookshop on a Sunday or whatever, but actually, you know, it hasn't, hasn't made us happier. And I think that now that we were in the middle of a big economic slump, people may be beginning to reevaluate a bit, well, what's important in the economic life of a country? And arguably in the 70s, the headline figures were not great, but there were other things going on to do with quality of life, to do with you know, the amount of pollution, the amount of traffic on the roads and so on. Those sort of indices, I think, were better. And I think now that we're beginning to get away from the 70s chronologically, people are prepared to see appeared with a bit more objectivity and realised that, yeah, that life then was not as kind of terrible. I mean, my I was a kid in the 70s and I remember my parents were not wealthy, but I remember us having lots of stuff. Um, a lot of people in the 70s 
had a lot of consumer goods and that's why there's all that 70s kitsch that we now like to laugh at because people could afford that stuff in the 40s or the 50s people couldn't buy that stuff so there isn't much kitsch from the 40s and that, there was a sense of abundance particularly for working class people particularly if they were in unions which most working class people were because their pay rises were high they were keeping pace with inflation unemployment was very low so as i say it was not in any way a utopia i think it was a quite a tough society in some ways, but in some ways it was also a kinder society than, than what we've got now. It is quite rare to get to the end of a 500 plus page book and wish it longer, but I got to the end and I thought, I wish you'd go on to the 80s. Is there any chance you're going to go, to go on and do the 80s? I'm tempted. I mean, I think when you write about a particular period, you always end up looking forward to the period after because your research inevitably spills over. And I am interested in the 80s, and partly because that was a period when I was much more politically active in the 70s, I was too young. But I'm not sure whether a book about the entire decade. I'm not sure if I quite got the stamina or whether my family will allow me to do that, but I'm considering possibly doing something about the early 80s and about the strange period I alluded to earlier where Thatcher in the first two or three years as Prime Minister was really struggling. And in a way, the worst crisis of all in recent British history arguably happened not in the 70s at all, as is traditionally thought, but actually in the early 80s when Thatcher's popularity ratings were the lowest for any Prime Minister ever, when unemployment was going up towards 4 million, when if you like, you had the 70s, but without the kind of safety net of the welfare state and the strong left, you just had a kind of economic meltdown. And you also had things like the Brixton riots um, and also the strange sort of escapism of the Diana wedding and so on. I mean, I think there's possibly an interesting book in all that, but um, we'll have to see.